No Directions PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash no direction. Well, I think we're actually supposed to start at 2.30 and it's 2.31, so has anybody in here seen Antilisa's story hour ever? Yeah, one person. Okay, cool. That means most of you haven't heard my stories, which is good. Um, I'm Lisa Stevens, uh, CEO of Paizo. Um, I've been doing... I've been in the game industry for... 35 years now uh, doing all kinds of things and this the purpose of this thing is for me to kind of like tell some stories uh, stories uh, you know are those that's how we keep our history alive there's not a lot of uh, there's you know no one writing books about the game industry and stuff like that unless your name is Guy Gag so uh, um, it's just kind of a fun way to keep that going and uh, we've been doing some uh Putting them up on things on the internet. Uh, I just did a Twitch thing with Peter Axon talking about the early days of Magic: The Gathering, and it's it's just kind of a great way to just keep these things going so that the future generations can remember what happened going forward. So I'll just kind of go through this, if, and I'll give you kind of overview of of how um, I got here to where I'm at today, and, and then we can just if there's areas you want me to like talk more about, we can do that. A small group like this, I kind of love, love you know, it would be great if we can, uh, you can kind of tell me what kind of, what parts of my career are interesting that you want me to tell more stories, because there's so much depth I can get to, and there's so many cool stories, but it, it would take us like literally five, six hours for me to tell. It's a story day. Yeah, it would be a story, at least a story day, which is how this actually kind of started, actually, kind of in a way, where the second PaizoCon, Monty Cook was the guest of honor, and it was, um, it was way over in Bellevue where we had that at the time. Uh, I can't remember the name of that hotel, but um, on the Sunday, which was the last day back then, we, uh, um, Monty and I were just sitting around in the lobby of the hotel, and we were just we were just reminiscing about the old days, you know. Well, remember when, oh, God, remember that guy? And we were just t- you know, talk, telling each other stories. And all of a sudden we noticed that all these people had gathered around, they were listening and asking questions. And I was like, this is kind of a fun thing, you know. As we sat on the whole afternoon just telling stories and, and interacting with, with basically what became an impromptu seminar in the lobby. And so the next year I said, well, I'm going to make, put this on the schedule. We'll, 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 you know, and we'll just go there. So, uh, so that's kind of how this thing got started. And uh, so now I'll talk a little bit about how I got started. So I was... You know your typical geeky nerd back in the in Wisconsin, and uh, when I was in, you know, by sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, I was uh, I went away to camp, uh, and it was a, uh, and it was like my first time. Actually, I was even younger than that, probably about third grade, because uh, I went to camp and I got kind of got homesick because the first time really being away from home. And a camp counselor gave me a novel, a science fiction novel called, it was by an author named A.E. Van Vogt. It was called Weapon Shops of Ishtar. And uh, I can show you a really cool, I did a whole video of the presentation, but there's no way to show it. So unfortunately, uh, I can't show these things to you. But um, actually, if we could, we could all get around in circles, I could show you. <laughs> I have this, all these cool photographs and stuff. Um, 
I read it and, and, and just instantly became a science fiction fantasy fan, went and devoured everything I could find, went to the library, checked every book out, uh, went to the, had my mom take me to the store and bought all four books you could buy at the store. Most of them were Tolkien, but you know, it's, and then, but then just kind of kept devouring that as I went forward um, and became a huge, you know, uh, science fiction fantasy reader. And then uh, in 1980, there was a uh, we, the, the home computer started, and there was a local music store uh, that added a computer department, and they had a, one of the earliest IBM computer home computers there, and on that computer was this game called Al Calabeth. Now Calabeth was uh, it was by a guy named Lord British. It went on to become Ultima, uh, the Ultima series of games. But Alcalabeth was the original thing. It was just a raster. If you, if you could see, that's what it looked like. It was literally a black with white lines. And, and you and you'd go and you'd, you'd be attacked by a rat. You'd tell a rat. And it was like very, very early dungeons, you know, like kind of idea. And I would go after school. My, my school was about half a mile from this place and so after high school I would go and uh, go, drive over and go play that video game in the store and they loved me because I would sell computers for them. People would see me having fun playing the computer and they want that I buy the computer so they actually encouraged me to keep coming back so I did that for like a whole year I just spent my evenings playing uh, Calabeth in the store and I go off to college and I don't have a computer and so I was like desperate to try to find some Alcalabeth and I put up a notice saying anybody playing Alcalabeth here in college and they got someone called me and said I don't know I, I don't don't have Alcalabeth but I'm playing a game called Dungeons and Dragons would you want to come play that and so I went and played uh, Dungeons and Dragons and it was with this guy and he only played once but that was all I needed hook line and sinker I was totally into it and I I remember going and Going to the library and reading every book on mythology and whatever. I just was wanted to know more about all this fantasy, cool fantasy stuff I'd played one game of. And then my mom gave me this cool box of uh, Dun- you know, Dungeons Dragons beginner box for Christmas that year. And uh, I devoured it. I colored my dice in. I also got some sets of uh, Ralph Partha Ralph miniatures. There was some sort of adventures, some sort of monsters. And I, I, over the Christmas break, I painted them all. Still have them at home. Still have the horrible paint jobs. But, you know, that's part of history, right? And uh, I, I got my, sis- my sisters to play in my game with me. And that's my first gymming. And I just, you know, and then I got back to college and I found a couple more people and started playing and, and playing and playing and, and as we started playing word got out that was had a game and more people wanted to join more people joined and uh, before you know it I had I think at one point I had as many as 16 people playing in my game which was a crazy amount of people to run in the game and we were and by that time we were playing AD&D first, uh, first edition Advanced Dungeons Dragons so uh and uh, one of the, the two people, two people, well, one person that wanted to join my game is a guy named Mark uh, Reinhagen. And I don't know if you guys know Mark Reinhagen, but he was the guy that uh, was the author of Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf and those things. Um, but he was, went to my college, and he, uh, and another guy named Jonathan Tweet, who was another famous designer in our industry, uh, they were both just kids in college at the time. And they, uh, so Mark, you know, wanted to know about my game and we, we kind of made a deal where I played his game on Fridays and he played on my game on Saturdays and then we played in Jonathan's Call of Cthulhu game on Sundays and 
before we know it, we're, 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 we got to be friends. And they said, hey, you know, we're going to make a game. We have this game we want to make. It's a game where, we, where it does magic right. And it's called, it was called Ars Magica. And you can still buy Ars Magica today. It's, it's only like it's 6th or 7th edition. Um, and, uh, but, uh, that was the uh, first uh, printing of Burns Magica back then. We formed a game called Lion Rampant Games, game company. And Lion Rampant was our the heraldic symbol of our college that we went to, St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. And uh, so the Lion Rampant. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and so we, uh, we released that game, and we had no freaking clue what the hell we were doing. Uh, we were a bunch of kids in college, and so we... Uh, we uh, got our first print run. We went to the local college bookstore and sold them, I think, about $35 worth of copies uh, to sell them in the bookstore. And then we went promptly spent that money in a keg of beer. And uh, great business plan, but not very good for paying bills and stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll show you this. There's a... I suppose you can't really see this picture, but that, that, was, that was our crazy little group back then, you know. This is what I'm moving me into... Uh, Moving me into a new apartment, and uh, we actually used my apartment as the offices. So everybody would come into my apartment, and we used the the front uh, living area as the the office. So we put a bunch of desks and books stuff in there, and I lived in the back and uh, the kitchen, in the bathroom. But uh, you know, the rest became Lion Rampant's offices, and uh, we started making game products, started making our smaga products, and it was doing pretty well. Um, I was also at the same time was you know, I was doing this. I was also very much in. Uh, the early days of the RPGA, Role Playing Gamers Association, early D and D organized plays, first organized play uh, thing ever. Uh, it was very different back then. There was no living campaigns and stuff. You would basically go and you would uh, you'd be given a, a pre-generated character and you'd have to role play it from scratch. And so everybody would vote at the end who the best role player was, and you'd you win first, second, and third place, and then you'd get points and stuff like that. So. Um, the uh, uh, so because I had that connection, I knew I, I'd actually volunteered to help at uh, before Gen Con one year. I'd help them get their RPGA ready for Gen Con, and I got to go to TSR and uh, and and actually work in TSR and stuff, which was pretty cool. And uh, so, but I knew I got me I got to meet a bunch of people. So when Mark and and and, and Jonathan wanted to make this game. I was their industry insider because I had been to you know, D&D one. I had been to TSR once, and I knew a couple people. So I wrote an article in uh, uh, Polyhedron Magazine called uh, Night of the Wolf, and it was, uh, it was one of the first things I ever got published. It was a piece of short fiction about my Ars Magica character, Lupus Mortis, and, uh, and then I did stats for D&D 2nd Edition and uh, uh, Ars Magica in the back of it. And it turned out it was like one of the most loved things that, that to that day, you know, they, I, I heard that they kept getting, uh, you know, phone calls from people saying, do more of this kind of stuff, do more of this kind of stuff. And, and um, it had this interesting side effect because they, back then that you had, a, there was only one industry game awards. It was called the Gamers Choice Awards and it was voted on by RPGA members. And we won best new role-playing game that year, 1988. And, uh, and before you know it, um, you know, we had all these distributors coming, people wanting to translate it. There's a flood of people to our booth, and all of a sudden we were a real company, right? Selling product and stuff and being successful. And so at the time, we Jonathan leaves, 
Uh, it's just Mark and I and a bunch of other people, uh, Nicole Lindrews, a few other people. Um, and uh, we get this... We're having some trouble with you know with money because we're just we're not very good at it, you know we're kids, and uh, there's this investor from Georgia that basically says he's you know he'll he'd invest a bunch of money in our company but we'd have to move to Georgia so we picked up our, our lives in Minnesota moved to Georgia, guy bought us a house at this beautiful house in Sewanee Georgia we're all living in it it's like a commune right I have a room you got a room you got a room we all share the common areas and then we just sit there and make games all the time it was pretty dang cool. Yeah, it was, it was real fun. I mean, it's, when you're kids, you know, you just it's it's a cool way to live. And um, so we're doing that, and uh, everything's great. We go to, you know, um, we we start ramping up production. We have multiple game books in, in process at the same time. We came up with a little game called The Challenge, this little card game that actually inspired Magic the Gathering later on. Um, and uh, and things were going great, except the guy ran out of money. So we come back from Gen Con in 89, and uh, there's an eviction notice on our house that we're being evicted because the guy ran out of money and couldn't pay for the thing, so the owner was taking it back. And we were like, what the hell do we do? So while we were down in Georgia and stuff, there was like a little magazine called White Wolf Magazine. And uh, White Wolf Magazine. <laughs> And uh, the uh, uh, editor was a guy named Stuart Wick, and uh, his brother Steve also helped out, but Steve was going to college and stuff. So Stuart was really the person behind it, and he loved Ars Magica. They were playing Ars Magica. So they, they actually published a bunch of early Ars Magica articles inside the magazine, and their big thing, like this issue, this particular issue they gave away at Gen Con that year, they gave away thousands of copies to every attendee that came by the booth and stuff. And so it became this, it started becoming this pretty big magazine. And so so we have this eviction notice, and Mark's thinking we're just going to shut the company down. And I got this crazy idea. So I guess there's a third thing that kind of happened right at the same time. And that is, so remember we said we went to Gen Con and came back to the eviction notice? Well, while we were driving to Gen Con that year, so we, we all drove in the same car. We basically all piled into a car, drove to Gen Con from Atlanta to Milwaukee at the time. And uh, as is the want of gamers, we were talking a lot. And uh, Mark had been reading the Anne Rice novels uh, from Vampire, uh, Interview with the Vampire and the Vampire Lestat. And he's like, I really would love to do an Interview with the Vampire role-playing game. That would be really kind of cool. And so we sat there the whole ride there and back. We talked about what a vampire game would look like and stuff, what we could do. We, we were getting pretty excited by it and stuff like that. And then by the end of the trip, we decided we weren't going to do it. Uh, we would just make up our own world and stuff like that instead. And so we get back, and we'd had this idea to do this vampire game, and we thought it was going to be a pretty cool thing, but we had this eviction notice. But our sales had actually been doing pretty good at the time. I and mean, I was in charge of sales and marketing and practically everything else, art direction, graphic design, you name it. And, and I was like, so I came up with a business plan. So I said, we, we owe a lot of money to printers for the stuff we'd done for that Gen Con, but it was selling well. And so I said, well, let's just keep line ramping over here as this company, and we won't do anything new for that. But we'll form an, another company with White Wolf Magazine. We'll call it White Wolf. 
and uh, we'll use their cr printer credit. You, you know, if you have credit with the printers, you can basically print stuff without them taking any money from you for 30 days. It's kind of it's kind of a nice thing, right? And so you you know, if you had enough sales, the sales money come in. You pay the printer, you pay the artists, you pay all the other people, and you'd be good. And so we were at the point where we could do that. And so I, I talked Stuart Wick into forming this company with us so that we could uh, continue to make new products and then do Vampire. And so all that happened that summer. Uh, we ended up paying off all the line ramp and debts. We closed that company down. White Wolf gets started. And, um, and then we're off to the races. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. We put out this kind of crazy, crazy game that I think hit the zeitgeist at the right time. And uh, it takes off and goes, it's going crazy bonkers, you know, sales and stuff like that. So right about this time, I had met these... I met this guy named Rich Kalis at a trade show. We have a trade show called uh, the Game Manufacturers Association trade show, and uh, it's in uh, Vegas at the time. And uh, I met this guy, Rich Kalis, and he was starting a, a new game company in Seattle uh, with his friends, and it was called Wizards of the Coast. And they were just a bunch of guys who got together. It was actually named after the CEOs of one of the the groups in his D&D campaign basically had was a group that was called the Wizards Wizards of the Coast and there and, and and so that's he picked that name from his 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 D&D game and uh, and so we just got to be friends and I, I told him I'd help him out you know give him give him advice and everything and so you know during the months where I was vampires get, getting ready to take off and stuff I'm you know helping these guys out kind of pay back all the help I'd been given as a, when we were getting started and uh and then uh, Vampire takes off and stuff like that. And, you know, there's... I won't get into details on this because it's personal kind of things, but uh, there were some personality issues at White Wolf and the things kind of got a little heated and stuff. And I found myself on the outs of, uh, of the company and yeah, I was asked to leave and uh, with a few other people. And uh, I was pretty dang devastated because I put all my life into this. I'd moved down to Georgia, given up all my career and everything to go do this. And here I was on the outs. And Peter Atkinson, who was starting Wizards of the Coast, saw this as an opportunity, flew me up to, you know, invited me to come up to Seattle, and uh, then made me the first employee at Wizards of the Coast. And I brought all this experience to them I didn't have because they were just wanted to make a game company. They literally had nothing but more than a P.O. box and a... Uh, um. Yeah, pretty much a PO box <laughs> and some ideas, and uh, and so we. Uh, I, I move up to Seattle uh, once you know once more in someone's basement. <laughs> this time was Peter's basement. So we we started Wizards of the Coast down there, uh, but you know I had a bunch of contacts and things, and so I don't want to find any pictures of these things. These uh, are these are you know I'd love to show you this stuff. Oh, well, someday. Early pictures of. Um, so we're in the basement. We're, we're kind of. Uh, uh, I had some contacts with uh, a guy named Steve Secchi who did a game called Talislanta, and so we became the publishers of Talislanta. Peter had some ideas for making some generic uh, supplements for any type of games. We did a thing called Primal Order, which was a deity 
he called it a cap system. You could put it on top of you know, like a cap system on the game, uh, and provided rules for basically gods and that and how gods interact with worshippers and how you become a god and everything else. Peter's games were pretty high, high, uh, high level uh, fantasy uh, in terms of. Uh, I think some of his guys were up in the three or four hundredth level. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, and so, uh, so we start doing that. But while we're getting off the ground and stuff, he meets a guy named Richard Garfield at a local game convention in Seattle called Dragonflight. And uh, they, he was uh, Richard was pitching a game called Robo Rally. Um, it's a really fun little game where you're basically got these robots and you program them to go around this crazy deadly uh, factory floor that wants to eviscerate your. Your little robots. It's a fun game. I think it's. I don't know if it's in print anymore, but it was. We released it eventually at Wizards. But it was too big of a project for a young fledgling game company that hadn't really done anything. And so I convinced Peter he need, we, we needed to wait on it. And so Peter went back and said, "Do you have anything simpler like a deck of cards or something?" And I say they were kind of talking about. Um, you know about about the type of game. You know, Peter had noticed that people had time when they were waiting in line at conventions and stuff. He's like, if you have a little portable game I can carry in my pocket and just play on the floor or whatever, we're waiting. And that's you know, Richard had a game called The Five Magics that he had sitting in the closet, and he worked that around a little bit and came back and pitched us what became Magic the Gathering, and um, and it pretty much blew my mind. I mean, we got we got some playtest decks that came in, and. Uh, we didn't get much work done for about two months because we were just playing this game. And I, 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 I said, this is the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. I bet you it'll sell at least like a million dollars worth. <laughs> uh, you know, at the time, our sales were about $30,000, so I was thinking big. Um, but we had no idea how to get it made. It, it was it was a crazy idea. It was a trading, you know, trading cards, but they're playing cards and and had art on them and you know pieces of art were expensive and if you get a the time to get like a piece of color art was like a thousand bucks and we have 300 cards in there we're this little company with thirty thousand dollars of sales how do we make this game right how do we how do we how do we find 300 artists a thousand like i mean you know it's just it kind of seemed mind-boggling and then i couldn't find any printer that could print it literally couldn't find anybody to print it you know all the people that made playing cards made like poker decks and they were all the same thing. And then the people that did randomized cards were like sports cards and hockey cards and baseball cards and football cards and things like that. And but they you can't play with those. Those you know, those are those kind of card where they're bent. So I was just having really trouble figuring out how to make make it this thing we and I was worried someone would steal it because we we're just a small company, it would take us forever to make this thing. So So during this time, you know, we figured a couple things. I you know, we 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 basically found artists that were willing to do full color art for us for I think it was a hundred dollars, a hundred bucks worth of stock in the company, and then we had like a ten percent of all sales went into a pool of royalties that would go get split up amongst the artists. And uh, needless to say, a lot of those artists became millionaires. Um, we knew, <laughs> and uh, and then I and then I found my old company, White Wolf. They introduced, they had made an acquaintance with a, a card printer in Belgium called Cardamundi, and we met one of their the guys who was their sales one of their sales guys, and 
And he knew exactly how to make these carts. And so we printed them in Belgium, and Magic came out, and it just obviously exploded, uh, you know, through the roof. And uh, before you know it, we're on a runaway hit, trying to figure out what how to build a, a whole genre that didn't exist. And so that goes great, and I'm doing all kinds. At the time... I was doing like art direction, sales, marketing, you know, customer service. All I was doing technically <coughs> half of what a company does, and and also now we have to hire hundreds of people, and I had to divest myself of departments left and right. We're getting license licensees coming in. I spent one crazy year uh, trying to get a movie made in Hollywood. <laughs> literally getting picked up at the airport in limos and taken to like high profile meetings with Michael Eisner, the CEO of Disney, having dinner with his, you know, there at Disney and then, and then getting, going over to Peter Goober, the CEO of Sony Entertainment and, and just, and all these people were like, you know, you know, bringing in big stars and, you know, just you know, eyes like this, like, this is so cool. And of course nothing ever got made, but uh, it was a neat year, and then and, and, uh, so I started doing all that stuff, and then at the same time we started building up the Pro Tour for Magic, and I was involved with building building up the Pro Tour, and then we launched a line of retail stores. Uh, we had one in downtown Seattle, or not, in uh, the U District of Seattle. We had a big thing called the uh, Wizards of the Coast Game Center, and I have beautiful pictures in here of what that looked like. It was gorgeous huge minotaur head that was bigger than the ceiling uh, that was uh, in there, a big life-size dragon and everything. It was really cool. Um, and while this is all happening, I was actually out at a pro professional magic tour in New York, and I get a phone call from Peter Ackerson saying, hey, tomorrow you got to go to the airport and you got a flight to Milwaukee. Uh, we're buying TSR. And I had no idea this was coming, right? It's just like, bada <laughs> boom, boom. So I literally, I'm on, you know, I'm packed for a weekend, and I fly to Milwaukee, and we buy TSR, and I spend the whole summer in Milwaukee, and I, I literally was like, I was raiding their, uh, the Gen Con store for taking old T-shirts and stuff, and that's what I was wearing, looked like a, like a walking history, <laughs> history bag of all the stuff, but you know, it was, it was, it was so cool, because it's back to my roots, right, where I first started, where I, you know, I volunteered here at TSR, and I'm walking the doors, and this is ours, we just bought this, and all the history and everything else, and it was just, it was pretty daunting, and I knew all, I was a fan of a lot of the people that were there, you know, here, these are people I had, I had their autograph in my, in my books, and, uh, and stuff like that, and all of a sudden now, you know, I'm on par with them, and it was pretty cool, I mean, one of the, I mean, I had two really cool moments uh, as we were doing this. And his point of Peter's things, he wanted to reach out and heal, heal the rifts that had happened. And uh, so he reached out to Gary Gygax, who had, had been persona non grata there. And I remember Peter and I met Gary for dinner, and then we went to TSR, and we, and we took him on a tour of what his company had become. And it was just so cool seeing him. Gary back at TSR, introducing to all the people and stuff like that, and just kind of saying, you're now part of his family again. You know, he never did work for Wizards of the Coast, but it was still kind of cool. And then we did the same thing with Dave Arneson, and uh, I got David, you know, just having Dave uh, be able to come back and stuff like this. And, um, somewhere here, I got this awesome picture. Oh, I'm going to see if I can blow this up so you can see it, but... One of the, that's, that's a very young me there. Um, 
I, was, I was in charge of Greyhawk. That's one of the things I got to be in charge of. And so there's Gary and Dave Arneson uh, side by side at a seminar at Gen Con that we put together uh, to to talk about Greyhawk and D and D in the early days and stuff like that. So I actually got those guys to to actually sit with each other and and, and talk about that stuff. Which was they had they they had been like lawsuits on each other and before that and you know also I, I was able to to be a part of helping the real heal, uh, heal that rift which was was pretty cool um so you know uh, come on stop <laughs> um the um so that all happens and um um The um, so there's some opportunity. One of the big things about me is I'm a big uh, Star Wars nerd, huge Star Wars nerd. Vic and I have one of the largest collections of Star Wars action figures, or Star Wars collectible stuff in the world, and uh, it all happened because I bought him a Boba Fett action figure in 1995, and before you know it, we're we're going down the deep rabbit hole. Um, and so I really love Star Wars. d and Star Wars are my two big things. Um, and so I knew that there was a... We wanted to be able to get the rights to do Star Wars role-playing game and Star Wars trading card game stuff at Wizards. And so, Oh, and it said, uh, you know, at this time we also got bought by Hasbro. I, was, I really wasn't involved with that other than as a shareholder okay in the sale. That brought us a lot of leverage with Lucasfilm, and so we, when we got bought, we, I, I basically asked our Peter Atkinson to ask the CEO Alan Hassenfeld of Hasbro to basically go to Lucasfilm and get us the license. And there's a crazy story about how I tried to get the license at Wizards of the Coast back in when Magic came out, and I had it in my hands. It got taken away by Hasbro and stuff. And I can tell you a really funny story about that later if you want. Um, but here I was flipping the tables, and we ended up getting the the, the rights to do uh, uh, um, Star Wars, and so I became the Star Wars brand manager. Got to do uh, left D and D, you know, left D and D. Went to Star Wars. Got to launch the role playing game. Got to be the president of the Star Wars fan club too. At the same time, we did Star Wars Insider magazine as part of uh, being the fan club, and. Uh, I got to go. Vic and I got to go see the filming of episode uh, three in Australia. It was pretty cool. It was, you know, it was like living the dream. And okay, that's actually Paizo, though, isn't it? <laughs> all the stuff it has all merged together. So, so I, I, I do Star Wars at, at, at Wizards, and what happens when when a company buys another company? A lot of times, the old guard gets kind of pushed out, and so in. Uh, 2000, end of 19, end of 2000, uh, Peter Axon and I both get deep sixed out of Wizards, two of the founding people and stuff. Um, and I was kind of okay with it at the time, I was kind of burned out, working real hard, had just sold the company, sent some money. So we took a year and got bored stiff. And I had left little, when I left Wizards, I had left little, like, I'd gone around. I'd read a lot of stuff about Hasbro, and Hasbro, one of the things Hasbro always did is they divested pieces of the business. When they bought companies, they would get rid of parts of it. 
And so I, I kind of knew what parts they might get rid of. So I went around to all these people and said, hey, if they ever try to get rid of this part, give me a call me. I'll be interested in talking about getting that. And what, I get a phone call from the magazine division, a guy named Johnny Wilson. And, uh, and he said, hey, you know, they're, they're, they want to get rid of the magazine division. That was Dragon Magazine, Dungeon Magazine, Star Wars Insider Magazine. And so I met with Johnny, and we did the business plan, and I said, this looks pretty good. I like this, you know. So we formed a company and together, and, and I didn't know what to call it. And he's, he had been always, he's a Greek uh, scholar. He's an uh, ordained minister, actually, too. And he had had this, 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 this uh, Greek word in his head, paizo, meaning to play. I said, you know, went looked, and, well, you know, it looks like no one's really using that word, so we can use it. And, uh... Started Paizo, and uh, it was you know started as a magazine company, and uh, the worst part about starting a magazine company was it was really bad timing. It was the internet was just taking off. Um, it was hard to be have news, have stuff that people didn't already know about the day it happened, and the you know Star Wars Insider was all built upon insider news about Star Wars, but everything was hidden instantly to all the, you know, the internet. So we found that it was getting harder and harder to, uh, you had to kind of like, like really get, get, you know, get Lucasfilm to give us stuff that, 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 that they weren't going to release anywhere else and stuff like that. It was, it was, and even then it was just like people were, you know, one person just needs the magazine and they put all the information on the internet for free for everybody. So it was, Magazines were just starting to get this downturn, and it was uh, just at a time where all the costs were going up, all the printing costs, all the costs for labor, shipping costs, everything else was going up. And so it was just, it was kind of, if you ever want to re read about the down, why magazine businesses in general just had a downfall, I did a 10-year blog with Paizo. It's 10th anniversary. I did a blog for each year of Paizo. I looked for Auntie Lisa Story Hour on our uh, website, and I did one for every year, and one of them talks about magazine business and, and how crazy that business is and uh, so you know we, we, we ended up losing money the first couple of years and it was getting kind of desperate and I uh, looked to me like we we're going to go out of business and uh, it was a pretty, uh, pretty bad time and uh, I uh, not a quitter so uh I did have to lay a few people off, including myself. I actually laid myself off and worked for free for two years. Um, you can do that when you're an owner. <laughs> and uh, but I had to lay some other people off, which I never wanted to do. Never have done since. But we were in pretty bad shape. But we said, well, what do we, what do we know how to do? What do we know how to do? And it's like, well, okay, we know how to make adventures. We were doing Adventure Paths and Dragon and Dungeon Magazine and stuff. So first we did a couple of uh, books that were compiling stuff from Dragon Magazine. We did a Dragon Compendium. We did Shackled City, or when our first Adventure Path we ever did, we did as a hardcover book. And those did sold pretty well. And everything, we, you know, we thought, well, we can do this. We can, we can make this work. And then the, somewhere there, Lucas, uh, so Johnny leaves. Uh, Johnny Wilson, the guy who I started the company with, leaves. And there was a clause in the Lucasfilm contract that allowed them to cancel the contract if he ever left, so they did. So I lost Star Wars Insider. That was two-thirds of my revenue. So we doubled down on Dragon and Dungeon, and, that, and then did that for two years, got these hardcover books going. And just as that was starting to get good, Wizard of the Coast takes away Dragon and Dungeon. They were launching fourth edition, and we had just kind of 
<laughs> like it, it was kind of like boom, boom. What more could possibly happen, right? And um, so we sat down and said, what, what do we do? We know how to do adventures. So we came up with the idea of, of doing the adventure passes, monthly volumes. Uh, we came up with Rise of the Ruin Lords and, uh, for 3.5. And that did really successful and was really, really good. We were, again, all right, we figured something out. We can make a company out of this. And then, you know, fourth edition's coming out and they don't have any way for us to, to, to they didn't have any way for us to do compatible products or anything. And we're like, we have to do something. So we, we said, well, we should take our fate in our own hands. Started decided to do the Pathfinder role playing game, and the rest has been kind of history. Just been you know that takes off, venture pass take off, and all of a sudden this company's that this that started off with it's just you know twenty people from the magazine division, and now we're up to like seventy six people um, doing Starfinder and the adventure card game and all kinds of other stuff and uh, and Isocon. So that kind of brings us here in a, in a very short uh, Reader's Digest version. Like I said, there's lots of uh, stories that you can have in here. So if there's any part of this that's interesting to you, I can delve into more detail. Go ahead. It seems like really key to your success is the, uh, the OGL, being able to make the, the games. Were you at all involved in that, that initial I will tell you a funny story about all right. that. All right, so I was... I was one of the brand managers at Wizards. I was in charge of uh, Star Wars. And then I was in Greyhawk and stuff too for a while too. Um, and RPGA. And uh, the guy who was running the TSR part of Wizards of the Coast was a guy named Ryan Dancy. And Ryan Dancy, uh, if you've ever met Ryan, he's pretty... He's a really, more than, really very brilliant guy. Really, but almost, but he's kind of a little bit outspoken. He rubs people the wrong way. Uh, a lot of times, he's he. You uh, almost need someone to translate for him, like you know, you know. So, what he really meant to say was this, you know, kind of, you know, kind of try to like be diplomatic because he's not very diplomatic. And Ryan, I remember he was all excited. He called us into his office, and he's like, "I got this. I've been reading about this open source stuff, and I really think this is the future. We should open source." You know, one of our biggest, when we launched third edition Dungeons and Dragons, our biggest competitor is going to be all, all the people in the game industry and they're already established games. What we need to do is get them, instead of competing with us, make products for us, make products that go with our game rather than making a game that competes with us. And so his idea was to basically give away the, the mechanics and, uh, and, 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 you know, the OGL and, and I told him, I said, this is the absolute worst idea I've ever heard in my entire lifetime. <laughs> this is insanity. You, are you trying to destroy our business? Are you trying to you know, screw us over? I mean, I, and, but, you know, he was compelling. And he, he finally kind of, you know, explained that, no, no, it's, this, is, this is good because I, all these people be funneling all their products would, would need to, they need to buy the core rulebook or the player's handbook, right? And the, and the Dungeon Master's Guide and stuff like that. And so I started to see the light on it and stuff like that. And uh, we did get a lot of the industry to get on board with it. And I think it really helped with the adoption of 3rd Edition too. Um, and, you know, Ryan also kind of... So he told me this later, many years later. But I think there was... he. 
he also saw himself as a as a steward of the Dungeon Dragons rules, and I think he was a little worried that Hasbro, this big huge toy company with GI Joe and Transformers and whatever, wouldn't understand how important D and D is to the game industry, and he, he was I think he was a little bit afraid that at some point they could just cancel D and D, mothball it, and there would be no D and D in the world. You know, there'd be nothing new other than what had come before. And I think he kind of saw this as a, a little backdoor, a little escape hatch for uh, the industry that if Hasbro did that, then he's put it out there for free so they can never take that away. And so I think there was kind of a little bit of that in his thought process too. Not that he pitched that to any of the people at Wizards at the time. <laughs> but, you know, I think he was thinking about it a little bit. And... Uh, um, and he, you know, what he had basically said was, as long as we make great products, no one will be able to compete with us because we're we, we're the only ones that can use the D and D brand. We're the only ones that can use a bunch of the iconic Holder, Mind Flayers, and stuff like that, Dritzt and Elminster, and all the campaign settings we have. So that you know, all we have to do is make good products, and, and uh, people would be silly to compete with us. But you know, when Pathfinder came out. It was, you know, with fourth edition and, the, and, and they had kind of, you know, depending how you look at it, really gone away from the core of what, you know, of, of what uh, D&D was. And I think that opened the door for, for Pathfinder to come in. And, you know, it's kind of what Ryan had envisioned that if they ever, you know, made a product that didn't deliver on what D&D was, that someone else could come and do that. So it kind of worked out, you know. The thing I thought was the worst idea ever was kind of responsible for Paizo surviving. So, uh, thank you, Ryan. <laughs> so, who got to make that decision when, when you were making the OGL? Peter Atkinson. I mean, it was, you know, it had been Peter, you know, and he was, you know, and it was probably mainly just Peter. I mean, sure, there were other people in the room, you know, Vince Clory was the CEO, and Peter was, like, the president, and, um, you know, but Vince is not a gamer, he was a he was a guy from Boeing. He was an operations guy, finance guy. He, you know, he was he was kind of running the nuts and bolts of running a company. And Peter was the, the visionary and the creative guy. And so, I'm sure Vince would have been like, "Whatever you think, Peter." So you know, um, but yeah, it was you know pretty much Peter would have had a okay on that. And then you know there was the head. There was like also the head of the D and D creative, Bill Slavisek, at the time, probably had a buy-in on that. I wasn't in those meetings, so I don't. I never got this to, to be a fly on the wall for that discussion. But um, Ryan was pretty convinced because, considering he got me from worst idea I've ever heard in this industry to oh, that's a cool idea. He's pretty. He's pretty persuasive that way. Um, yeah. Anything else? We got. So, so how did the adventure concept come, come about? I mean, to me, that's what Paizo is the number one thing because Wizards was making all this material that was just ruled and sourced and there was nothing to play. Yeah. <laughs> and Paizo just changed that for me. So, when we were doing third edition Dungeons and Dragons, um, we had a lot of meetings to talk about what Looking back at the history of D&D, so one of the things that when I I was actually the business analyst for the D&D group for a while too. Um, that was one of the roles I had, and 
uh, ended up being kind of Ryan's right hand person for a while. And just and he's he's very analytical. He loves looking at numbers. And I remember the first thing he ever asked me to do was, and I I, I thought he was a big blowhard when I didn't really know him at the time. He is actually a big blowhard. I love you, Ryan. Um, but he uh, he asked me to like give me the history of the role playing game and the. You know, show me the evolution of all the games and how many copies they sold and blah blah blah. And why this happened? He asked me all this stuff, and I was like, "You might as well ask me to freaking you know cure cancer and whatever." I mean, it was stuff you just couldn't do, right? Was, that information is not out there. Nobody publishes their numbers. It wasn't like an age of the internet where people might go out there and put stuff. It was just like, and and, and it was like, I, I went to him and said, "You just trying to get me fired? You're trying to ask me to do impossible?" And then he said, "Oh, you, you could do this." And, so I said, screw him, I'm going to go do this. And so I did. And I, I went and called all my friends, all my contacts. I got all this information. I made this huge analysis. And uh, we came up, you know, one of the things I did was I looked at what, so TSR had been in really some dire straits. And one of the reasons we were able to buy them uh, was because they were pretty much in bankruptcy. And they were about to be acquired by either their printer or their uh, book distributor, um, because of defaults in their contracts, and um, um, and uh, so I went and looked at why why did the successful company was TSR why did and one of the things they had done is they had they had taken their um, their campaign settings they focused everybody on becoming not D and D players but Forgotten Realms players and Greyhawk players and Dragonlance players and Dark Sun players and Ravenloft players and whatever and they basically so whenever you come up with a product it only appeal to a smaller and smaller subset of people and you know you know it frustrated me as a you know the guy who was in charge you know the person in charge of Greyhawk saying hey I'm gonna you know I'm putting out this really cool adventure it could be played in your fans' handy settings, oh, they wouldn't touch it if it had the Greyhawk logo on it. And you weren't playing Greyhawk, no one else would touch it. And so, you know, we I can see that as the the more campaign settings, the more fractured their their group got, and the more the sales got on each individual product. Um, so that was one takeaway. The other thing we saw that we saw was that when you talk to players, there is this. When people talked about, got together and talked about playing D&D, they talked about the adventures they played together. And the thing that we realized is that in the early days especially, and, but throughout history, there, was, there were seminal adventures that became like against the giants mm-hmm. that went through the faults of the drow and stuff like that, and then all the way to Walth's uh, thing, or Temple of Elemental Evil, or the Dragonlance Saga, or whatever it was, right? These, these adventures that became these campaigns, that is what people would talk about. And they'd get together and they'd talk, hey, you play D&D, cool, yeah. Oh, you're playing El- El- Oh, yeah, what'd you guys do in this? Oh, we played this and, you know. And there was these, this, this, this common zeitgeist that was around these adventures. And we, so we launched third edition. We said we wanted to have, create an adventures that became, would become the touchstones. And so if, if you go back and look, there's there's like a series of adventures that we came out for third edition that take you that start with first level and go all the way through twentieth level, and that was supposed to be this kind of and we internally we called it an adventure path. It was a group of adventures that had a path to the to the end, right? And uh, I think we may have even used it in some like that word those words in, in a marketing text or something too. And uh, and then. 
Um, Chris Perkins was in charge of uh, Dungeon Magazine, and he got the idea to do uh, Adventure Path in Dungeon, and that was the Shackled City Adventure Path. That was the first time we was actually really like branded as Adventure Path. So we did, you know, they did uh, so, and that they were just starting to get that to happen when Paizo grabbed the magazine division and took over. So we implemented what Chris had decided this had kind of started when he was at Wizards. And uh, I think Chris Thomason was involved too at the time. And you know, he came with the, the, the division when we, when we started uh, uh, we started Paizo. And then so, you know, so we did Shackle City. We did, oh no, another one. I know, I'm trying to remember, it's so many, we did three of them, I know. Um, Savage Tide. Savage Tide, there was one, and there was another one, Age of Worms, right. And uh, and so, you know, again, then when, when we, you know, I decided we needed, you know, what do we do well? We do all the adventures, so Venture Path, Rise of the Rune Lords, creating our own world, um, that kind of stuff. We knew how to do that, right, so. Um, but that's kind of how that whole thing started. Genesis was, it was really an homage back to, Temple of Elemental Evil against the Giants, you know, and uh, all these adventures from the early days that became these touchstones, that became these these campaigns that people would play, and 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 then, and, and, and so we were hoping that that was what they would become, and they have, you know, that's you know, if you've played Rise of the Rune Lords, you can, everybody knows what the Swallowtail Festival is and stuff, and so it, it becomes that kind of like, oh yeah, I can tell you a story, and you like kind of know almost, like, you can almost picture because you've been there, you're third characters, and it might have went differently depending on the GM, but you know that was kind of that idea. And I, I think for for it's 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 this weird thing with adventures are are never the best selling thing in the world. Because they only sell to game game masters, right? Whereas world books and stuff sell to players, and so they always sell more. But I think you need to have adventures to have a successful line of rule books and stuff. And it's it's always when you when you're looking purely at numbers, it's easy to see how um, companies decide to not do adventures because they just they look at it, I can put the effort into making this adventure, I can put it into the rule book, we'll sell more copies. But if you just make them all rule books, then because the thing about gaming is that you have to have these great moments. And as a GM, one of the things that we decided early on with Paizo is to give the GMs tools to have these great moments, right? To have, um, you know, things like the maps and the miniatures and the pawns or whatever it is that give them, to help the players have these, 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 these great moments that tell, so they have these stories to tell for the rest of their lives, right? And, um, Adventures, our adventure paths are that, you know, they're these, they're these crafted, well-crafted adventures that help the GM. And you still have to put your own spin on them for your players. You've got to, you know, learn to deliver what your players want, not necessarily, and we don't know exactly what your players are going to want, but we can at least give you a framework that's 90% of the way there, and then you can do the last 10%, and that's a lot easier than making all 100% yourself, especially nowadays where everybody's busy and, and stuff. So, I, you know, it, it, it's this weird conundrum that you need to have this. You need to do it well in order to make the rest of it run. It's almost like the fuel that makes games run. And if you don't have good adventures, people play, and then they don't have a good time. They don't have a good memorable experience, and then that means they don't, they don't they stop playing. And so, you know, it's kind of these things that are maybe don't make it, they, they make money, but they don't make so much money. But 
they are, but they're the, they're the most important thing. So you put your biggest effort into something that doesn't make you as much money, so then other things will make you more money. I mean, rules are rules too. Jason will kill me if I tell him to say that. <laughs> but uh, and it's true. I mean, a really bad rule set can get in the way of the story, right? So, would would you say as well that having come from the magazine industry, because it it kind of went into that subscription model, right, of the adventures and that? Well, that's the way that ended up saving in the long run. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, 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 it was on it was on purpose. I mean, it was. So the weirdness is probably have time for this a little less. Um. So the, the magazine business is obviously built on subscriptions, and so when people buy a year's subscription, and this is getting getting in, into science in behind behind the baseball kind of thing. But it, you have to take the money, and, and you don't earn that money until you ship them the the yeah. magazines, right? If someone asks for a refund, you have to refund them the, the part of their subscription that you haven't fulfilled. So technically, you're supposed to put that money into uh, you know account somewhere and only take it out as you earn it. But of course. I think I might have mentioned we were running some hard times and we spent the money. And so, you know, um, so we're, we're, we're losing the magazine. And, and I, you know, part of the idea was and we have these people that are used to getting something from us every month. Can we move those people over to this adventure path line? And, and if you're, if you're not sure if you remember, but we, we offered really a really yeah. aggressive thing yeah, of, of taking your so of taking right and yeah. so the part of that was is cheaper for us to have you guys migrate over than to pay you back right so uh you know we wanted to plus then then, you, then then we hope we can hook you and yep, so <laughs> so it all worked out and it, and, it, and it you know it's just it was but yeah that subscription thing you know it just was born out of the you know we already have this infrastructure in place and people are used to doing it for magazines and it was kind of like oh, we were the first people to ever do it outside of magazines it was kind of crazy which is why we had to make our own website and our own software because you couldn't buy it and no one was doing that stuff so anyway fun stuff <laughs> uh, they haven't given me five minutes yet so we still have five, we still got five minutes so yeah go what am I playing now? I'm actually playing the. I was. We were just. We just finished up our Starfinder game campaign, and we just jumped into the new uh, adventure card game. Um, and so we're gonna play that for a while while you know, Pathfinder Two comes out. I have to say, I got a little spoiled with Pathfinder Two because once I've played Pathfinder Two, it was really hard to go back to Pathfinder One. Um, <laughs> I really like a lot of the changes we've made, and uh, I've of course seen the final books. And they just they took the things I didn't like from the uh, playtest and deep sixed them and kept all the things I really liked and added even more of them. So um, I think they did a really good job of, of, of synthesizing all that feedback and, and really delivering a, a great addition that really feels like Pathfinder, but just removes the things I didn't like about 3.5 basically because Pathfinder One was kind of 3.5 and there's things that were just like. And I didn't like from 3.5, and we didn't fix them because we were maybe a little scared to go too far from 3.5 originally. But it's like, no, this is a good chance to fix them. You know, I think everybody can agree. These, I mean, there's going to be some people to disagree with me and think that those were, you know, assets and not, you know, things that need to be fixed. But that's, you know, that's why first edition's still out there for you. Um, but I'm really excited about that. You know, and, and so. When we jump in, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, w- I want to make sure the books have been out so I can absorb them and stuff. I'll, I play our adventure pass. That's one thing I do. Is I, I play the adventure pass from the book. Uh, someone's got it, you know. And it gives it's it's it's, a, it's good. You know, it's a great way to get feedback, right? To to my team about like 
things maybe they're doing great or things they're not so doing great you know and you, you can learn a lot by you know I wish I wish more of our people played the products we made you know we put out I mean they play our game but they always make up their own campaigns because they're really creative people but like if you actually you play the books we print you know some ways you find out like we're doing stupid stuff and 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 um and fix it but we we tend to fix that stuff when we do the the, the compilations like we did you know rise of the lords you know i actually helped uh i ran rise of the lords so i actually worked with james jacobs on what we needed to do to 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 fix it for the hardcover anniversary edition stuff i didn't play curse but i read it a lot and so i i, I was gonna i was about to play it but um, but yeah card game is, is is pretty cool and i love the new card game it's uh fix so Vic, this is my husband Vic. He's the other owner of uh, Paizo, actually. Uh, he's been with, with me. He was at Wizards back in the early days of Wizards, and uh, we started the company together. He was the third person that started the company. It was Johnny Wilson, Vic, and I. Vic's, uh, Vic's in charge of the card game at, 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 at Paizo. And, uh, uh, I love the fact that it, it's, first of all, I don't have to, I get to play, so that's kind of fun. You know, it's kind of fun to be able to not have to be the one that's running the games all the time, but actually get to play. And then uh, um, the, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a great way to, I mean, it feels like we're playing an adventure path, so I, I love that aspect. It's just a different mechanic of playing it. And the new, the new version is so much more cooperative, uh, which I think was something that was, it was almost that impetus to, to split up and, you know, you all say never split the party, but uh, and then now I think there's a reason not to split the party in the adventure card game, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm playing now. We'll we'll play second edition. I'm, I, I see. I know the adventure pass coming up, but I'm trying to figure out which one I wanna, which of the first three I wanna get in on because I I'm kind of partial to the third one because I had this idea a long time ago. I, I I threw it out there at one point and said, wouldn't it be cool if we did an adventure pathware and they're doing it and it's the third, second edition adventure path. I'm like, can I wait that long? Can I wait that long? I don't know. I don't know. But then I know if I get into a campaign, you know, it's going to take probably two years for us where a bunch of uh, people with families and jobs and travel and everything else. Uh, it's, it's hard. I mean, we're lucky to get together twice a month, you know, for your, and, and we're, and we, you know, when we do get together, it's like three, forget three hours and we're lucky. So it's, it can, it can take for a long time to get into the whole adventure path in. That makes me feel better if you have that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these people, I mean, I've been gaming some of these people since, Jesus, like 20 years now. So, you know, it's this, we, we all know each other pretty well. Uh, one of the, actually one of the newest members of our group is actually one of my oldest players. And I mean, in terms of, I've been, I've, been gaming with him longer than Nick and I have been married. We've been married over 25 years, but uh, he was in my college gaming group and he moved to Seattle and I, now he works for Paizo. It's, it's a great tall guy named Glenn Elliott. He's over by the computer games. You see a guy that's like about six foot five and balding on top. It's Glenn. You can just go sound Melissa said I, but he was in my, he played a he played a paladin in my game Repticester and uh, now he's in, he's playing in our in our game group. So he's our newest member of our local game group, but I've known him for zillion years. So it's kind of like fun, you know, seeing an old player come back to the group. So. Did you play Dead Sons? I did play Dead Sons. Yeah, we didn't get all the way to the end though. We uh, that's our group tends to do that. We tend to flame out a little bit. Um, we got through Rune Lords entirely. Didn't get all the way through Kingmaker. We didn't get all the way through Shackle City, though. I did truncate it. Um, 
because I, I, I at the end I kind of mishmashed a bunch of stuff into kind of like one huge encounter. <laughs> it took us like two months to play through um, because we kind of wanted to get through it, and so I kind of like find ways to, to to get us through the last couple books quick. And uh, but yeah, we were playing Dead Sons, and actually we really enjoyed it. I was just we were just starting to do something too. The thing that ruined our Starfinder games, second edition. Because there's just things in there. When I, t- I stopped to play the, the play test, and then I really kind of want to play second edition now. Um, but we, I was doing a really fun thing with Starfinder where we were. Uh, I really wanted fun to deal with, but I was I was basically where the uh, path. Uh, Starfinder Society had made a deal uh, to with a local television group to basically have the characters be on a, the reality show. Of like you know, so their adventures were the reality show being beamed back to Absalom Station, and there, and so they, you know, his you know, director saying, "Hey, next time you're killing the guys, you give us a little more, you know, <laughs> grudge a little bit, and stuff like that. You know, make sure, make sure, you know, make sure you get that drone bot, you know, the camera bot, you know, at the right angle, so you can see your face and give us a good smile." And I guess mean, that's you know, because I wanted to have confessionals where people, you know, the players could go and do confessionals about like who's which of the characters in the, in the, in the group is, you know, pissing me off? I, I think it would be a really fun way to kind of do this thing. I'm kind of bummed that we... Because you can't really do that in a fantasy game. You could do that in a science fiction game. So I thought that was kind of fun. I think that was that would have been fun. The, I, the players were kind of balking out me doing this. So they weren't cooperating. But, uh, anyway. They haven't, they haven't kicked us out yet, so maybe there's nothing in here after this. So it's... Uh, it's hard to adapt, right? Like, it's 2019 for yeah. the publisher. It's got to be a lot different than when you start. Like, what's hard? What's really different? Now? What's hard? This world. <laughs> wow. I mean, what's hard? It's, there's so many things. Um, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but the barrier to entry is so low now um, that many more competitors come into the marketplace. But one of the things that's happening, what we're finding in, the, in, the, in, in our, the hobby game industry, is there's so many products coming out, and hobby game retailers don't have a lot of money, that they have a hard time buying all the products and, and stocking the products and keeping them in stock because there's just so much coming out, and they don't want to miss the next hot thing. So they kind of feel like they have to get everything, so they don't go as deep as they used to. Um, and it's you know it's just and then most of that's Kickstarter and things allowing people to, to fund things without having any money ahead of time uh, or a business plan or anything else. Um, so that's made that harder. I think social media has made life harder because um, I mean it could make it easier in some ways too. If you, you know if someone someone goes out there and really and they get a lot of followers and they like your thing, they can also make it sell a lot. But same thing if they don't like you, boom, you can. And, and, and it's real hard to like false facts get put out there by people that have a lot of followers. Also, that becomes reality, and you, it's hard to fight that. Um, and you really have if you come out fighting something that someone says, then you look bad. And so it's it, it's kind of a different world. Um, I think also um, the way the youth of today. Is consuming gaming is different in the way when I was young, and uh, I mean, who would have? You know, I remember a couple years ago when I, I heard that 
you know, Wizards of the Coast was going to put a lot of effort into Twitch streaming of their games, and I thought this was the stupidest thing. Who wants to watch people play a role playing? <laughs> Turns out a lot of people. <laughs> and, 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 and it's like, you know, it's something I'll, I'll never do. I'll never ever watch. Well, that's not true. I actually watched Jason on our, you know, Obsidian North Billing a little bit. Because um, it's just, you know, it's just not my thing. But obviously, there's a lot of people that find this, you know, really compelling for them. And so we're putting a lot of effort into trying to catch up now and, 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 and provide that kind of content for people. That, you know, that's a, that's a whole different skill set than we have, you know. I mean, you're talking, yeah, it's almost like it's almost like making movies and stuff. So um, that, that makes it a little harder. Um, there's a lot more, I mean, you know, back when I first got started, you know, I mean, I was the tech person, and I, it's because I can install an operating system on a computer. Now we have programmers and web developers and all the, I mean, I have these, you know, those guys are expensive, especially in Seattle, you know, you know you gotta, these guys, you know, they go to Amazon or Google or whatever, right? And so, you know, you, you, to get quality people, you have to pay more money, and that's stuff I never would have had to do in the past. Um, and, you know, just how information gets out there so quickly now, which is a curse and a blessing sometimes. It used to be so hard. Like, how do we get let people know about something? Now, you know, I get, you know, Eric's just kind of mentioned it in passing somewhere. It's all over the internet. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, some of the, the blessings is the, uh, it's, it's the world's so much easier. It's short, smaller. I mean, it's easier to sell stuff everywhere. It's uh, easier to, we have more options for printing. In fact, you know, on the, when I got started, we had a, the only place to print was in the Midwest. No one ever thought about printing in China or anything. It was just too expensive. It took too long because of the boats and stuff. It was just too expensive to ship all that far. That far. But as the world's kind of gotten smaller and, and, and things have gotten faster, they, it just got cheaper and cheaper to ship. So you need tariff. Well, until we got a tariff coming in. Well, maybe. We'll see. June 26th. Um, so, yeah. Kind of all the all, all those things, you know, and and I think there's just another thing. It's just there's a lot, a lot more products to be made, right? Um, think about just you know, yeah, you know, I mean, back back in the '80s when I got started, there were you know there was a fair bit of product, but it was it's like you know maybe two percent of what there is today, you know, <laughs> and you know it's uh, and I thought it was a lot back then. So it's 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 uh, there's a wealth of of stuff to compete with out there. Uh, and everybody's finding new ways, you know, to deliver this stuff. Uh, um, can't, fortunately, I can't tell you about something I'm hoping is going to come out later this year with a partner. But if it comes out, it's going to be, it could be game changing. It could just be a whole different way to to interact with adventures and stuff like that that never been done. So. Um, I don't know if it'll happen. Contracts aren't signed yet, so. Yeah, you know, you'll know you'll know when it happens. You'll know, you'll say, "Oh, this is what Lisa was talking about, right?" This was that thing, you know. And, um, yeah. So you know, it's it's exciting because but it means you have to const. I think you do have to constantly rethink how you do things and uh, constantly be open to changing what's important and. Um, yeah, we still make print products. I don't know how much longer we'll make print products. It feels like a weird business to be in. So I think about you, you're, you're 
You're a printer. You're a book publisher. Yeah, we are. We sell. You know, I mean, we we sell a lot of PDFs now and, and stuff, and we sell we sell product through you know things like Hero Lab and Roll Twenty and Fantasy Grounds and you know that kind of thing. I can see happening more and more. Um, and you know, but you know, who knows? I mean, we'll see. You know, it's, it's it could. I, I, I've been I've been predicting the death of print books for about ten years now, and they don't seem to be slowing down. Maybe a little bit, but you know, the digital sales are just growing. So right now it's additive and not subtractive. But you know, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if that you know. It would be it would be interesting to figure out the demographics of that and how much of the print sales are going to the older crowd and the, and the digital stuff's all going to the young crowd. And, of course, they, they they said that about vinyl records and LAR. They're making a comeback, right? So you know, it's you know, it's just uh, no. It's a very it's my, very much a changing world. I mean, my job is part of it's just to constantly figure out what's going on in the world and just and keep my eyes open and ears open and try to figure out you know. And then brick and mortar. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with brick and mortar retail? I've been you know, I've been. I've been worried about them for a long time too, and they keep surviving. But it's uh, and it, all it takes is one, you know, big catastrophic loss. I mean, we lost Borders Books, and that put a big hurt on a bunch of people. And uh, thankfully, we weren't impacted by Toys R Us. But um, you know, is this, you know, if one of our large distributors went out of out of business and you know owing hundreds of thousands of dollars to you, that could that could impact things. Um, and I just, you know, we had a lot more game stores back then, but I don't. How do how do you survive? How do you survive as a game store when? when and they, you know, I am too, and I think a lot of them are too, and it's probably because they don't make that much money, and they, but they they do it for love, and uh, and I think those successful ones are brand themselves more as experiences, places to come play games, and. Um, but it's that's hard. That's a hard. That's a hard, that's a hard. You know, it's a hard sell. I mean, it's not as hard to sell to younger players because I mean, I think young people are much more about the experience, less about the. You know, they want to have a really good experience. If you give them a great gaming table with lots of cool props and things that they can play with, I think that's cool. I think a lot of the older gamers are all about owning product, and <laughs> I know me, I got bookshelves full of products and shelves of miniatures and. Foot mats galore and stuff like that, and, but I think there's a lot of people that they don't like care to own that thing, but they want to have that experience of having it. So I think game stores might be able to rebrand themselves that way. I know a couple of really smart people that are looking at that way of how to bring digital game aids into it and stuff like that. So we'll see. You know, it's 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 always in motion. The future is, as I said, uh, one said. Um, so you know. Constantly looking at that stuff, but I'm I'm worried about brick and mortar retail. It's it's getting harder and harder for them to to compete with uh, Amazon and stuff like that. I mean, it used to be able the competition was it would take three to four days to ship or something, but now with next day delivery or sometimes even same day delivery now for free for Prime members. I mean, it's how do you compete with that, right? And I mean, there's there's retailers in our industry right now who can buy Dungeon Dragons from Amazon cheaper than they can buy it from their distributor. I mean, it's you know, it's it's. I mean, how do you compete with that, right? 
And then if they're not buying from the distributor, then the distributors, they got very slim margins. They're only dealing on 10% margins. So uh, the whole thing is a little bit unstable right now, right? And I, that's something that worries me and I have to constantly look at. I mean, it's a, one of the reasons I built Paizo.com as an e-commerce thing is to have this as a safety net. It's like if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, I know our customers can get stuff right from us, right? But if other people may not have that set up, and what do they do, right? That's, you know, it's, it's even hard for us to compete with Amazon, right? We make the stuff. It's hard for us to compete with Amazon. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, I mean, sometimes they sell it for almost what I print, the print cost is. That's the same, right? Your margin is my well, I see. I mean, people don't people don't realize that Amazon doesn't make any money. They lose money on most of that stuff they sell. You guys, and they make their money as third party people, like third party sellers selling on Amazon. And the reason third party people sell there is because everybody shops there, and so and that that's where they make their money. And the cloud, and they make they make cloud retailing is a big part of their thing now. But um, yeah, they don't. They can sell it at my cost because they don't care if they make any money on that sale. I have to make money on that so so yeah it's a it's it's a tangled weird world you know that we live in and uh, but in some ways it's opportunity in some ways it's a threat so um, but you know thankfully people still seem to like what we do and kind of products you know, so as long as that's profitable we'll be <laughs> making them any else how did you put your team together Well, I'll tell you. I, I'll tell you. Uh, I've been asked a lot of times. This, the, what's what's the secret to your success? And it's, the answer is surrounding yourself with great people. That's harder to do than it sounds, but uh, a lot of it's just finding people to start companies with. Um, so, you know, Paizo was literally the magazine division at Wizard of the Coast ripped out lock, stock, and barrel and put over and went, man, this is the company org chart, right? I mean, literally, that was my, my contract with Wizard Coast said I had to, like, take every person at their current salary and, and title. And so I just literally <laughs> moved them over. Um, and then it's just, you know, some people don't work out, some people do. Just, you know, constantly trying to find, uh, just, you know, trying to find that the, the, the people who are just, have that special it, you know, that thing that, that just makes them, you know, like, so Eric Mona, <laughs> I've actually, Eric, well, I met him on America Online in the 1990s, mid-1990s, uh, we were both fans of Greyhawk, and this is back before we ever had TSR or anything, and, and we just, there was a, a board on America Online where we talked about Greyhawk, Greyhawk campaigns, and Eric was like the brainiac that knew all the, every the minutia of every last little Greyhawk thing. He could tell you exactly where everything was from and and stuff. And then when I when we bought TSR and I became charge Greyhawk, I grabbed Hey Eric, <laughs> and there was another one other guy on there too that was about as big of a brainiac. Uh, and they became my team Greyhawk, and I uh, I would basically everything we published, I would just send them a digital copy. And have them look through it and find all the little minutiae errors and stuff, and then I put them in as like Team Greyhawk in the credits. And so that, and then when we launched the uh, Living Greyhawk campaign at, for RPGA, 
I knew who I needed to hire, and so I hired Eric to come and, and, and join the company to run the Greyhawk campaign, and then before you know it, he was running magazine and blah, 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 and he came over with the, we you know, got the magazine division, he was, um, he was uh, doing Dungeon Magazine at the time, actually he may have been like associate assistant, was it, oh yeah, sorry, he was doing Polyhedron, right. Yeah, the, the back half, Dungeon was too... That's right. There was a Dungeon magazine, and the back half was Polyhedron. He was doing all the D20-compatible uh, stuff. And uh, then he took over Dungeon, and then he ended up taking over Dragon, and then, you know, when, and then he became my publisher. But he was just, you know... I knew he was that that special kind of guy, right? You had to get him in here. And, and he just kept doing great things. Uh Five minutes. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it's just that. I mean, Jeff Alvarez, my COO, uh, came in as a customer service representative. But I could tell really fast that he was smart and he, he would, you know, things would come up and he'd say, oh, I can I can take that and I'll do that. And he'd do it really well. And, and just you find those people when they, they kind of, when they're constantly stepping up and surprising you and making you happy, it's just that's when you... Uh, you know, you got something, and you just kind of got to kind of give them a, a career path, you know, and, um, you know, it was just, you know, so that's what we do, you know, you just you try to find really good people, um, and people who are passionate about what we do, right? Um, my, my CFO, I mean, he's not a gamer at all, uh, so he'll laugh and say he's trying, um, but, you know, he was, I was trying just to find a little, a, kind of junior finance person and he applied for the job and I said you must have made a mistake you're a CFO level person we're looking for some junior guy and he's like well, I don't know maybe I did maybe I didn't let's get together and talk and I just we got together and talked and he headed off and he's been a godsend to because you know you got a company full of creative people having someone that really understands finance and the business side and can really give you great insight and visibility about how your products are selling which ones are doing well which ones aren't that's kind of data you really need to help because, you, you know, you find out that people really like maps with forests on it. You do more maps with forests on it. <laughs> you know, if they don't, they, don't, they don't like these types, don't do any more of those things. And in the past, you would just kind of be, say, like, I'm a gamer. Oh, I want to get a, wanna, you know, I want to get a tournament or something like that. And then, no, it doesn't sell, right? <laughs> it's good to know that. And so, you know, he's been great at and So you just, you know, you got to find that team that just kind of, and that they can work together. Um, once you find them, you get to hang on to them. We've been pretty good at that. We have quite a few people have been with me over 10 years now. And Eric's been with me since day one of Paizo and before that into Wizards. And Jeff came on like four months in. Um, so, uh, and you, you eventually you get, they're like, they're kind of like my children. I mean, it's like my family. It's this company. Nick and I don't have kids, so this is. This is my family, and uh, you know, it's it's it's. You feel a sense of pride in watching. I mean, I was going to show you guys a video of. Uh, I did a video on the 10th anniversary of Paizo that I I just watched the other day, and I was going to throw it in my presentation if I had a freaking camera ability to show this. But you see some of these guys and how young they were. They're just like, oh my god, we were all so dang young back then. Um, <laughs> it was. It's 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 kind of fun, you know. I just we were. You know, I think the the key, though, I'll, I'll leave you with one last little thing, and that is 
the other key to success is perseverance. Um, I think every time in my life, I could, if I told you the long stories with some of these things, they all have a dark moment right before the success. Um, before a vampire launch, we literally were, uh, they were going to cut off our electricity, our phone bill, and everything else right before we launched it. Uh, Wizard of the Coast, right before Magic came out, we got sued by Palladium, had to lay off the entire staff, and we all worked for free for about nine months before the launch of Magic. Um, so that would be really easy to just quit at these moments, you know. The time when Paizo was losing Star Wars and had to lay off a bunch of its staff, it would have been really easy to give up and, 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 and just say, this is too hard. But instead, we, we doubled down, fought back, and, and, and came back stronger than ever. And I think a lot of people quit before they could have that success. And I think it's not, it's not for everybody to, to persevere through those really hard times. But I think, uh, you know, in business, it's, you know, I have to tell my, whenever we have a little bit of a down thing, you know, I have to tell everybody, look, like life's not all about ups. There's ups and downs. You know, you got to fight through that stuff. And business is no different. You know, there's no business that just kind of does this all the time. There's always this. There's always things that come and, and provide obstacles and, and things that you have to kind of like rethink and redo. So um, persevere. Man. Yeah, that's, you know, you have to, to succeed, you have to be willing to kind of like work through the hard times. If you've got great people around you, you can, you can succeed and stuff. But. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the No Direction PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage. We'd like to thank Ryan Hiller of Geek Dad and Justin Sluter of Justin Sluter for the recorders they provided, as well as the KD Con team for their diligent work. To find this and other great convention coverage, visit NoDirectionPodcast.com. 